Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we talk about the use of military air and spacecraft from their earliest days up to today and into the future. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I am your host, Brian Lassley. And our guest today is Roger Lanius. He is the former chief historian of NASA from 1990 to 2002. He is also the former associate director of collections and curatorial affairs at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. And more importantly, he is the author of Apollo's Legacy, Perspectives on the Moon Landings. Roger, welcome to the program. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. So why don't you uh, give us a quick little bit about yourself. Tell us how you uh, came to be a NASA historian, a little bit about your background. Sure. Uh, Well, I uh, finished my PhD at LSU and uh, worked really in the history of the American West, uh, especially religion in the West. So I didn't have a special uh, knowledge or understanding of aerospace history at all. Uh, but when I uh, completed my PhD, I looked for a job and found was one as a civilian historian with the Air Force. A really good gig. I spent uh, eight years working for them in a variety of positions. And then in 1990, I saw an advertisement. And in those days, it was simply a, a an announcement on, on on a clipboard that I noticed that NASA was looking for a historian, a chief historian. So I applied for the job, and lo and behold, I was selected for the position. Since that time, I've really been focused on space history, and uh, done a number of books, uh, and uh, made made pretty much the rest of my career about about that subject. So. For those of the audience who may not know, we are approaching Apollo 50. Uh, in fact, I would argue that really since December of last year, in fact, earlier, if we want to go all the way back to Apollo 7, we are in the year or two where we can celebrate the 50th anniversary of Apollo. Uh, but this summer, uh, we will be celebrating the 50th anniversary of the first moon landing. So what drew you to this project? What made you think that it was time to kind of go back and get a retrospective on the entire Apollo program? Well, I've been trying to uh, put together a book on Apollo for many years, quite frankly. I had written drafts of chapters and had gotten only so far with it. And then, you know, I would get sidetracked doing something else and I would come back to it later. But when I retired from being a federal historian after 35 years in 2017, I really picked this up and uh, started working seriously on it with the intention of getting it out in time for the anniversary of 50 years since the moon landing. And so uh, the whole idea was it would be a retrospective. What was important about this after all these years? The fact that it came out in 2019, I think is great. Yeah, it's been a, a fabulous book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, there's there's a quote in the book, and I think it's from Science Magazine, to the effect that NASA developed kind of the modern idea, the modern execution of organizational management uh, or systems management. And this might actually be not walking on the moon, uh, not the Saturn V rocket, but this might be the actual lasting legacy of Apollo. Uh, do you agree with that, or what do you think the legacy is? Yeah, the, 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 there's no question that uh, that that particular opinion piece, it was written at the time that the Apollo landing took place, really did sort of celebrate the the management of the program and, and getting this large, complex effort under control and having all of the pieces fit together and work as they were supposed to. That was pretty significant uh, in the overall scheme of things. Not that big projects had not been done in the past, but uh, the complexity of this one really meant that NASA had to refine their management 
structure and the tools that led us to uh, achieving this successfully. No question, it was a, a triumph of, of uh, engineering and management skills. You know, you spend some time talking about things, buttons, purses, uh, that were important in the late 1960s, people wanting to own a piece of Apollo, even as important today. You know, I know that Lego is making a big push. They've done the Lego Saturn V. They've recently released the, the Lego Lunar Lander. You've got books, you've got posters, you've got all sorts of memorabilia that, that's really lasted over the last 50 years. So my, my question is, do you have anything that, that you kind of value yourself that makes <laughs> you think about the moon landings, you know, a, a little piece of history, if you will? Oh, of course I do. I've got several things. I guess the one thing I would uh, prize above all others was a replica of the plaque that was left on the lunar module uh, where it said, we came in peace for all mankind. I um, got one of those when I was at NASA in the early 1990s, and uh, I have kept it and it's in an honored place in my house. And I think that's one of the, the things I'm most proud of owning. And kind of as a follow up to that, I think that People who are interested in Apollo, who are interested in the early days of manned space exploration, they want to own a piece of it, right? You know, be it an artifact, uh, an autograph, a book. Why is that? What is it about the Apollo program that 50 years later still draws people to wanting to have a kind of a personal piece to it? Well, I think that uh, there's a there's a lot of things about this that that are attractive, and there's also a lot of possibilities to acquire things. You know, NASA's produced its share of little mementos over the years. You know, sometimes they're lithographs, sometimes they're mission patches or lapel pins or things of this nature, and it's uh, not all that hard to to get those. And uh, NASA. NASA folks will hand them out, but you can also find them for sale in a variety of places. And it's attractive because it reminds us of something that uh, was this great success in, in human history and the first time we you know, left this planet and went somewhere else. So it's a positive recollection of a great event in our history. And for those of us who were alive at the time, the connection is even more significant. Uh, you know, if you can physically remember what you were doing at the time that the moon landing took place. That makes it all the more special. That um, brings two questions to mind for me, if I could follow up on on those a little bit. You're talking about the popular image. Uh, you know, Apollo and, and the whole space program really has a large place in kind of pop culture, you know, movies and TV, whether it's, you know, Apollo 13, the right stuff, all that kind of stuff. Are there any kind of common misconceptions that are out there in the general public that kind of bug you or that you'd like to kind of set straight? Oh, there's all kinds of them, you know. <laughs> um, you know, there's a there's a lot of beliefs that exist that uh, are not borne out by the reality of the, of the story. And, and I'll point to one that's bothered me for a long time. When we look back on Apollo today, we think of it as this great, bright and shining moment in which we accomplished this truly stupendous feat. And it was. And we think that, oh, you know, everybody was so excited by this and they were paying so much attention and, and we were all involved and we were all behind it. And that is not true. The public as a whole, they didn't dislike it, but they weren't in favor of the spending the money on it. And this has always been the case. 
only at the time that the moon landings themselves took place in the summer of, of 69 did more than 50% of the public think that it was worth the cost. They thought it was a, a waste of, of, of money. And those on the political left thought that that money could be spent on things uh, that would help people like social programs. And of course, the mid-1960s, we see the birth of the Great Society and, and efforts to, uh, you know, to undertake a war on poverty and to enhance um, a variety of other types of social programs. And the political left thought, well, we should take that money we're spending on Apollo and put it against that. The political right thought that we should take that money and put it against things that they were more interested in, military spending or perhaps a tax cut. So the reality is that the public was less enthused by it than you might think. Now, in retrospect, we think back on that and we all think, well, you know, such a great, successful event. We all loved it. But that's just really not true. And I've, I've tried to get that across to people because I can't tell you how many times I've heard people in the space community, whether they be at NASA or industry or wherever else it happens to be, who have said, you know, if we just had the kind of public relations that was present in the 1960s during the Apollo program, everything would be fine. They didn't have it then either. That's the important thing. We did not go to the moon because everybody thought it was a great idea. We did it because there was a very specific geopolitical set of objectives in play, and it had everything to do with the Soviet Union and the Cold War. Absent that, we probably wouldn't have done it, certainly not on the scale that we did and not on the schedule that we did. Yeah, that actually got uh, to the second question I wanted to ask, which was about how popular it was at the time. So you kind of read my mind on that one. I have seen a few things, because this is not my field of expertise, but looking at some of the JFK documents uh, show that he got maybe less, less enthused over time about the program himself. Is that the case? And was there, if, if there wasn't support, you know, kind of at the time, how did that transfer into becoming such a, a positive thing that we look back on now? And, and what was the kind of official stance on it at the time? Well, I mean, the, the first thing to understand in terms of recollections is success has a thousand fathers and, mm -hmm. uh, and Apollo was this great success. So of course you look back on it and you think, yeah, this was, this was terrific. And we even had interviews with people for a, a program we did a few years ago who were congressional leaders in the 1960s, and they were not recalling their opposition. When we showed them transcripts of some of their floor speeches, however, they began to see, oh yeah, <laughs> I remember now. I did think that that Apollo 1 accident was really bad and that we ought to just stop this. And it was, we were wasting money and we were killing people. You know, it's good that they that they recollected when presented with facts, but it's hard necessarily to, uh, to accept that we weren't always in favor of what be turned out to be a great success. When we look back on it, we see it in more with sort of rose-colored glasses. You know, as, as we look back with these, with these rose-colored glasses, I, I would think that your average person knows we landed on the moon. I, I would go so far as to say that they probably don't know how often we landed on the moon, but I, I know that they all know that we brought moon rocks back. Everyone knows that we brought something back from the moon, but there seems to be this massive gap between the scientific knowledge of the moon versus the broader, what the broader public knows about what Apollo brought back. So why is this disconnect? Why do we know that we brought, you know, scientific objects back, but we don't know what those scientific objects tell us about the moon itself? Well, I think it has a lot to do. I mean, the, the moon rocks and the, and the lunar samples that were brought back, the dust and the other parts of that, those were 
specifically acquired by the astronauts on the moon with the support and the guidance of geologists here on Earth. And there, of course, was one geologist who did fieldwork on the moon, Harrison Schmidt, on the last mission, Apollo 17. But other than that, the rest of these landings, of which there were six, the astronauts had some knowledge, but they were operating with a, an awful lot of uh, help from the scientists on the ground. But uh, what they use those rocks for, what they use those samples for, what they use the readings from the other scientific implements left there or was to take data and to learn more about the environment, the geology, the morphology, the solar wind, and on and on and on. And that's rather mundane scientific stuff. The public usually doesn't pay attention to most of those sorts of things. They know we do work, for instance, in oceanography and that there are scientists who are engaged in that. But there's very few people who are not a part of that community that can tell you in detail what is being done in that particular arena. And the same is true with, with lunar science. So I, I would contend that the fruits of the scientific enterprise associated with Apollo was was stunning, no question about it. The samples themselves were used to learn more about how the moon formed, what it consists of, and so forth. It, they continue to be used right up to the present day, and there are samples that have been loaned to laboratories around the world where scientists continue to perform that work. We learned the origins of the moon, at least the best approximation that we have of that uh, because of the of the lunar samples. And that was not insignificant tasks. There were people at the time that Apollo was being developed who said, this is a fruitless exercise. We have been arguing amongst ourselves about the origins of the moon for more than a century, and we can't reach a consensus. We probably are not going to be successful by going to the moon and doing additional work. They were wrong about that. We did learn pretty much how it evolved. Uh, and that was remarkable. But I I bet there's very few people on the street. You can just go up to them and ask, and they probably can't tell you the knowledge gained in that particular arena from Apollo. So outside of the men who went there and outside of the samples we brought back, I think probably the most important thing that Apollo brought back to Earth was the imagery. And you spend some time talking about this. You note that there are several iconic photos, Buzz Aldrin with the flag, Aldrin with Armstrong seen in the visor, the boot print, the Earthrise photo from Apollo 8, the blue marble photo. My personal favorite is, is probably Charlie Duke standing at Plum Crater. Uh, and my daughter's favorite is John Young's big old Navy salute. So <laughs> do you have a favorite Apollo era photo? And then can you spend a few minutes talking to us about what these images mean to us or for us today? Yeah. Well, there, there are about a half a dozen or so iconic images, and you just mentioned several of them. And uh, they have proliferated around the globe and been used in all kinds of ways ever since uh, the landings. And the buzz salute, planting the flag and saluting it in Apollo 11 is an iconic moment. I find it one of the most striking because of its symbolism with all terrestrial exploration that had gone before. And we've all seen these pictures, artist conceptions most of the time, but at least by the time we're, we're talking about polar exploration photography, where you see the, the team at wherever the site is that they are exploring, planting the flag. Usually, in the case of Columbus, I remember seeing this plainly, raising his sword to heaven and claiming that territory for the sovereign he served. And we've seen that over and over and over again. 
the fascinating thing about Apollo was they did plant that flag. And they said, in, in not claiming the moon, they said we came in peace for all mankind, that this is a human effort and we're all a participant in the process. I think that symbolism was intentional and it's certainly not lost on the people around the globe who saw that. You know, there were people who thought that we should have planted the UN flag. That would have been a, a, a really striking tribute. Others thought that there were international folks who were working on the program. There were members of the science team that were around the globe. That all of the nations who were represented on the Apollo program should have had a plaque or a flag associated with those. And we didn't do any of that. We didn't specifically because Congress told us we couldn't. There was a law passed not long before the landing in which it said the only flag that's going to be planted on the moon is the U.S. flag. A little bit of jingoism there, but nonetheless, they were making a statement to the world, and it was about that Cold War environment uh, demonstrating the American capabilities as opposed to the Russian capabilities. So, so that's, a, that's a striking image. But the one that I always point to is one we don't usually see very much. There is a uh, panorama from Apollo 17 that shows off in the distance Harrison Schmidt and the lunar rover, and he's standing at the lip of a crater. It's just this little tiny speck on this large panorama. And, and what you see basically is miles and miles of nothing but miles and miles. I contend that that's very significant in a different way than the iconic images, but because it demonstrates why we stopped going. We found nothing there that we wanted. Had we found something, we would have continued to go. And if it was something that was of monetary value, which is really what sparks this more than anything else, the private sector would have found ways to go. But we didn't find anything. And while rock samples are really useful and the scientists couldn't operate without them, most of the world is not concerned about that. And for that reason, I think that's a symbolic image that really shows why we stopped going. And I'll tell all of our listeners out there, if you're into Apollo photography, there are two great books that are out right now, again, celebrating Apollo 50th. Uh, one is University Presses of Florida uh, Picturing Apollo 11. Uh, and the other one is simply titled Apollo 7 to 17. And it is nothing but photographs from each of the Apollo missions. Uh, well worth your time. Uh, but let me uh, shift gears just a little bit here. And one thing I'm really looking forward to uh, with this podcast is how the moon hoaxers take what we say uh, and use it to prove that we never landed on the moon. And you actually do spend a little bit of time in your book, a chapter talking about the moon hoaxers. Uh, and it has become as much of the Apollo story, you know, probably as the landing itself. Uh, so can you take just a few minutes to talk about why that is, why we continue to discuss or have to disprove the moon hoaxers in 2019? Well, uh, you know, Americans, maybe worldwide people uh, as beyond Americans, we love conspiracy theories. And so we, we embrace these things and we're excited by them. And it's something that, that is sort of a matter of course for just about anything that takes place, that there's some contrarian theory out there about how it didn't happen or how it happened in a different way or whatever. The moon landing is no different. Uh, at the time that the Apollo 11 mission was underway, the science reporter for the New York Times was in Chicago and he walked into a bar and there were a bunch of guys, or I shouldn't say a bunch of guys, four or five guys who were sitting on bar stools in the middle of the afternoon. And they were doing what Cliff and Norman of Cheers used to do, you know, just spouting off nonsense. And one of them said, you know, I don't think these guys are really doing this. I think it's being done in Hollywood. 
And uh, somebody else chimed in, yeah, that makes sense to me. And the next thing you know, they're in a full-blown conversation about how the moon landing is a hoax. John Noble Wilford uh, wrote about that and uh, at the time of the, of the landing itself. So it comes very early in the process, but it's never a very large group of people. You know, there have been a few opinion polls done. They basically find when they ask that question that there's five or six percent who say, no, I don't think we landed on the moon. And that's pretty much whenever it's been done, it's about the same. Now, that's the margin of error on a lot of opinion polls. So, you know, you can't make a whole lot out of that, but it's a persistent and very vocal group of people, even though it's quite small. I put the people who are in this, you, you know, who don't believe we landed on the moon into about three or four categories. The first one is, is a category of people who are just naive, technologically naive. They don't understand how it was done. Therefore, they don't think it could have been done. They're the same kind of people who believe that, you know, ancient aliens had to help the Egyptians build the pyramids. So, you know, you can sort of discount this pretty easily. But uh, but that's one group. You've got those who are just sort of, you know, they love a good conspiracy. So they're going to spin these things and and look for some information that they think nobody else knows and make their statements about it. You've got some people who are charlatans who are doing it because they can make money doing it. There are people who write books, who go on speaking circuits, who produce videos and so forth about this kind of stuff. There are those who distrust the government, just no matter what the government says. It's it's lying to you. And consequently, if they say we landed on the moon, we didn't, obviously. Those are the basic groups I would point to. But it's still a very small group, even though there's enough of them around that you're going to run into them now and then. And then you find people who just sort of say it in jest. And you find this pop up in sort of conversation where somebody's making a joke at a cocktail party. Well, you know, I met these astronauts the other day who said they went to the moon or something to that effect. And it's not that they actually believe it themselves, but they're happy to uh, to ride the joke. So the other thing I guess I would say about it, for those who don't believe we landed on the moon, they're not persuaded by evidence. Uh, it doesn't matter what you expect to them. It doesn't matter how you tell them that the that it wasn't trick photography, that this happened, that happened, something else didn't happen, and so on. That won't matter. Uh, they're not persuaded by evidence. I've engaged a few over the years. Whenever I respond to their comments about this kind of stuff, the last word before they turn and walk away is, well, you're just a part of the conspiracy. So, you know, if you don't accept their position, then you're one of the conspirators. You know, there are, uh, I think as a final question here, there are several numbers we could throw out, but it seems to be a seven to one return on investment seems to be a, a pretty good number to use with regard to, you know, what, what we got back from Apollo. And by that, I guess you could mean the American economy. Does that alone make it worth the cost of the venture? And I don't want to be glib there because, you know, we did lose lives in the process. You know, there were there were failures as well as successes. But does what we got out of the moon landing, does that make it worth the cost of the venture entirely? Well, I mean, seven to one investment is not a bad return, but under any circumstances. And so so I would say, yeah, that was a that's that's pretty decent. So the, all that means is a dollar put into the program turns over seven times and, and multiplies uh, the economy by that amount. So that's that's great. You know, you could spend that money in a different way and get a different multiplier, maybe it'd be more, maybe to be less. But there would be a multiplier of some kind. But let, let me suggest that a cost benefit analysis is probably not the best way to understand what we got from Apollo. It was established in 1961 to solve a very specific Cold War crisis. And the audience for this was not the American public or the Russians, but it was the emerging nations that were uh, coming into their own after World War II. 
They were mostly colonial states before that time, and they're gaining their independence in, you know, in Africa and Asia and various other places around the globe. And some of them are going to become world powers. A country like India is clearly in that category. Science and technology define the future. The nation that is going to be successful in the Cold War, and we we can never underestimate how desperate that struggle between the Americans and the Russians was in the Cold War. There was going to be a winner and a loser. There were two competing economic, political, and military systems that were in a death struggle. There is no other way to characterize this. And somebody was going to win and somebody was going to lose. So you want to bring to your side, if you're the Americans leading the, the West, you want to bring to your side as many of these new emerging nations as possible. And if you're the Russians, you feel the same way about the Warsaw Pact countries. You want to add to that. In 1961, it looked like the Soviets might be having the upper hand. They had these technological successes in space with Sputnik and Yuri Gagarin. They had successes on the ground, and you've got to point to Cuba and recognize how significant the fall of the regime there to be replaced by Castro as a friend of the Soviet Union was. And it just looked like they were marching around the globe from our perspective. So we wanted to impress these new nations. Science and technology is going to define the future. Science and technology is going to be the driving force between the victor and the country that fails in this Cold War struggle. So luring them to our side and a demonstration of American scientific and technological importance, significance, verisimilitude, if you wish, was really significant. And Apollo did that beautifully. It was established to do that, and that's what it did. You can't put dollars on that. It's really an interesting question. Had the Russians won that that space race, what might it have meant for the larger Cold War? Obviously, we can't know the answer, but I could make a case that the Cold War would not have moved into a different stage with Nixon, that there would have been continued tensions, and who knows where it would have gone from there. All right. Excellent. Mike, do you have any other questions? There's a couple of things I wanted to, to expand on a little bit. You know, the importance of science and technology, uh, something that I'm interested in, and I know you are as well, is how cultures tend to form around certain technologies and scientific developments. And something that surprised me to learn was how there's kind of different groups within NASA. There's little subcultures and maybe some of the JPL folks have it, kind of a different cultural approach. And then, of course, you've got the Air Force connection and some of the, the differences between the civilian in the military that are operating within NASA. Can you maybe unpack some of those cultural differences that are going on within NASA and how they evolved over time, particularly the civilian military stuff? Yeah, sure. How much time you got? (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, when NASA was created, they essentially took a bunch of federal agencies that already existed and mashed them all together. Each of them have their own culture, background, history, priorities, and so forth. The two army units that were brought into NASA, what became the Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which was a, you know, contractor facility, but had been working for the army for years before that, you know, they come in with their own particular cultures, and their cultures are very different than what they saw elsewhere in NASA. For one thing, in Huntsville, that community there, led by Werner von Braun and the Germans who had come here at the end of World War II, they firmly believed in doing everything in-house. They wanted to build the rocket from top to bottom in-house. 
They wanted to test every component of it until it failed and then rebuild that and test it again until I got a system that worked. And then you put them together, two of them in testament, three of them in testament, so on. The problem with that, of course, is when you're on a time schedule, this is a real difficult challenge. And and that that particular cultural mindset did not sit well in Apollo. You've got an Air Force engineering culture that's brought in at, from the top by Sam Phillips, who'd been the, the Minuteman program manager for the Air Force, who had a very specific sort of systems management approach that you know he borrowed uh, and brought with him. The old NACA, the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, had a different approach, which is mostly about doing individual experiments and then writing a report rather than building hardware and flying it. So all of these structures are different different. And it leads to rivalries amongst the centers, depending upon their heritage and their priorities. And it leads to uneasy relationships. There was always a fight between Huntsville, uh, the Marshall Space Flight Center, and what became the manned spacecraft center down in Houston, now the Johnson Space Center, because of that differing culture. And by the way, it's still present. There's this affinity between the folks at the Johnson Space Center and the folks at the Langley Research Center. And it's pretty obvious why. The Johnson Space Center came out of Langley and moved to Texas. They have this close relationship. Huntsville was the origin point for the launch operations complex, which is now Kennedy Space Center. So there's an affinity between those centers. And they duke it out on a regular basis over how they should go do it. And I shouldn't say duke it out. That's probably too strong a term. But there are rivalries and they have debates and they have arguments about how to do things. You mentioned earlier, you know, that we didn't find anything on the moon and that's kind of why we didn't go back, but that it has all these other important effects uh, geopolitically and economically. This may be a little too speculative, but just kind of thinking about the future, would you be, because there's a lot of a lot of people that want us to go back, whether it's to the moon or elsewhere, just to get back out there in space and be more active. I think there, that has at least some popular support among certain groups. Is that something you'd be in favor of or what do you think the advantages would be to doing or not doing more activity in, in a larger space program. Well, I mean, I'd love to see us sit foot on the moon again. I was around for the first time. It was very cool. I'd like <laughs> to see us go back before I'm gone. And I'd like to think we will. But it's going to be a tough challenge. Again, you know, what is the impetus for doing it? It's always the question why. You know, there were very specific, as I sort of beat the, uh, pretty hard in this particular interview, these Cold War objectives that we were trying to resolve uh, during that first moon race. We don't have anything like that today. So the question is, what will sustain an effort to return to the moon? What's the purpose of it? And are we willing to expend the resources necessary to do it? And how many resources are we really talking about? Uh, NASA administrator recently thought it could be as much as $30 billion more over the next five years to achieve a moon landing. Okay. Uh, are we willing to spend, are we willing to plus up the NASA budget by, you know, $6 billion a year for the next five years to accomplish a landing by 2024? We haven't been in the past. Congress has been unwilling to take those kinds of steps. What has changed? And maybe something has, but I, I'm not aware of it. Cool. Um, uh, Dr. Alanius, thanks so much for uh, being on the show. Uh, where can we find more of your work online or in print? Well, you can uh, certainly follow me on Twitter at, uh, you know, the, the little symbol and Alanius <laughs> R. And uh, I have a, uh, a blog page. All you have to do is type in Roger Alanius' blog and you will find it. All right, uh, Brian, where can we find more of your work online? So as always, you can find me uh, either on my Weebly website or most often every day on Twitter at Brian Lastly. Uh, and if you haven't done so already, I highly recommend you head over to Amazon 
or wherever your favorite place to purchase books is and get Roger's Apollo's Legacy Perspectives on the Moon Landings. And as you all know, it could probably be on your doorstep in less than 48 hours from right now. Awesome. Well, I am Mike Hankins and I'm available on Twitter at, at Hankenstein with a T-I-E-N or at MWHankins.com. And we're all online at BalloonsToDrones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook under digitalfishmedia.org. If you'd like to send us an email, please visit balloonstodrones.com slash contact. And if you'd like to submit an article to us for publication, you can definitely do that at balloonstodrones.com slash submissions. Thank you so much, and we'll see you all next time. <laughs>